0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music,
1: and more. It's like every time I begged for an extension on an assignment, it's every text message I've ever sent saying, I'm so sorry, I'm going to be five minutes. I'm so sorry, I'm going to be 10. I'm so sorry, I'm going to be 15 (laughs) minutes late. It's every moment in my life up until now, and I'm sure they'll keep coming.
0: Something weird happened in the last 12 months or so. It's the fact that all your friends, and perhaps you as well, have ADHD now. Some people blame social media for glamorising the disorder. Others say it's a symptom of our modern, always-on society. But what you can't argue with is the dramatic uptick in diagnoses and people seeking them. And where there's a supply and demand problem, there's going to be people cashing in. I'm Tegan Taylor, and this is QuickSmart, the show that feeds you big ideas in bite-sized pieces. And this week, where did this ADHD spike come from? Just how big is the gap between people seeking treatment and those able to give it? And if people are being over-diagnosed or underdiagnosed, or diagnosed with the wrong thing, what are the risks? One person who knows this story from pretty much every Angle possible is Angela Bois Pierre. Hey, Ange. Hello. How did you come to
1: this story? Okay, so I I am this person, right? (laughs) So I started being fed adhd content in my social media feeds i don't even know when i just i just remember going wow it really is every time i open my phone and it was really relatable this one's gonna sound like a weird one if you have adhd i have a question for you what do the bottoms of your feet look like here's mine
0: hey um your fidgeting is distracting me I can't help it. I have ADHD. Back to another episode of It's Not Silly If It Makes Your Life Easier. ADHD
1: edition. I was actually looking into it for Schmeitgeist for the culture podcast I made for the ABC going, well, this is a really interesting little subculture. And then it became abundantly clear to me that the shoe fits. Went to get a diagnosis and was really shocked at the process So much so that I did the thing that a journalist will sometimes do and go, wow, this awful thing has happened to me. I'm going to make it a national (laughs) story if at all possible. And so went about doing that and in the process realized that I'd actually had, comparatively speaking, a pretty easy time of it and that the problem was much bigger than I realized.
0: Yeah. And so we're going to get into it. Like it's about the cost and it's about like the amount of time that you have to wait and like the just a complete dearth of resources for people who are looking for this. What happened in the last couple of years that suddenly, I don't know, ADHD was a thing that kids had Mm. at school Mm. and then there just seems to have been an explosion in people
1: recognising it in themselves or seeking a diagnosis as adults? So I think there's two things that have happened at the same time. I think the research and understanding in the medical community has really come leaps and bounds. We being, you know, we the collective society now know more from a research perspective about what ADHD looks like in cohorts other than young white Males, which was the cohort that we were, you know, all the research was based on in the first place. Then we got social media. We had these spaces open up online, which were much more democratic, much more flattened. The formerly voiceless suddenly have a platform. So yeah, I was one of the people who uh, saw content like this. We don't know exactly how many people are looking in Australia right now, but we do know that even just from talking to psychiatrists about their wait lists, that there are so many more people looking than there are um, psychiatrists to see them. So thus we arrive at the immense demand problem, this bottleneck that's emerged in ADHD care in Australia.
0: If an explosion of people are talking mm-hmm. about something at the same time and all kind of coming to the same conclusion at around the same time, is that then you have like this glut of people who are looking for the same solution at the same time Mm. and the resourcing around
1: people being able to
0: get a diagnosis hasn't changed.
1: Yeah, that's right. So this is where the really radical supply-demand problem that we're seeing shows up. I mean, Look what happened to toilet paper during (laughs) lockdown. Look what's happening to the price of vapes now. You know, you you shut off the supply for anything and the price is going to go up. And that is exactly what's happened with ADHD. Adding to that pattern is the fact that adult ADHD isn't treated by the public system in Australia. There's no um, universal healthcare queue to join. There's no public queue to join. Um, So people are really stuck with the market rate, which leads them then to be willing to, or, you know, have no other choice, but to pay more than they might otherwise. What is the market rate? Okay. (laughs) Are you sitting down? (laughs) Uh, We have been hearing of -of out-of-pocket fees of up to $3,000 for a diagnosis alone. So one of the things that we wanted to look at was whether psychiatrists were always going to be able to make a totally objective assessment of the patients who show up. Because if you put yourself in their position, if you've got someone who's paid $3,000 to sit in that chair and they've come in completely convinced that they have ADHD, they've done their research, they've maybe taken out a loan. You're going to sit there and say, "Mm, nah, sorry, maybe you've got anxiety, like have a nice life. That is awkward, just on a human level. I had my diagnosis at the end of a single 45-minute session. Yeah, I'd filled out a questionnaire ahead of time. They'd taken a brief medical history but it didn't feel thorough to me. Do I think they got it wrong? No. <laughs> lots of lots of professionals seem to agree that I definitely have ADHD, but I did wonder if that was the right system. You know, if you're wrong about that, what, what are the impacts for me?
0: Yeah. And like, what's the cost then to the individuals in this big kind of soup when maybe there's people who need this, who can't afford it. Maybe there's people who are getting diagnoses because they kind of, Paid for it, you know, explicitly or not explicitly, or people who are being diagnosed with ADHD and actually what they've got is a different mental health disorder that perhaps an ADHD treatment isn't appropriate for.
1: Yeah, look, it's a mess. And I think we get really caught up on this question of is it overdiagnosis or underdiagnosis? Like, are, you know, are we all right or are we all wrong? And I think it's both problems like I think there there is an access crisis the people who need care lots of them can't get it at the moment. And perversely, the people who need it most are going to be least able to access the care because it is a very difficult system to navigate. The price point has gone up. If you've had lifelong ADHD, that does have impacts on your income, on your quality of life, on how easy it is to navigate a system like this. So those are the people, people who need it most, who are going to be most rather least able to access it. And then, you know, if you are able to get in the door, whether you have ADHD, whether you have something else that's presenting as ADHD, or whether you just a hammer that's seen a nail, you're perhaps not getting the correct assessment. And then if someone does get that wrong, the stimulants can make matters worse. Or, you know, if there's a, a medical comorbidity, there are risks there as well. Look, psychiatrists should be the gatekeepers of that. They should be the check against, you know, self-diagnosis, self-misdiagnosis online. Self-misdiagnosis online would not be an issue if those people then showed up at a clinic, and we're told, "Hey, actually, I think you know you've got X instead of Y." Mm. But what we're worried about is that that's not necessarily happening. Yeah. So, system broken. What would a better version look like? Great question. A Senate inquiry is looking into it right now. Uh, submissions are open, and we're expecting the report back in September. And that's really broad terms of reference as well. They're looking at access. They're looking at meds. They're even considering whether ADHD belongs on the NDIS which would be huge for so many Australians, also massively expensive for the government. Mm. So you can imagine that one might have trouble getting out the gate if it is a recommendation. One of the most interesting ideas I heard was from Diane Grocott and she is a very busy woman. Uh, She practices in Melbourne. She has an online clinic, although she does do her assessments face-to-face, I should say, and her fees are quite low. She's had her books closed for years and uh, she opened them A couple of years ago and was basically inundated. After that experience, she basically went, okay, this is enough. I'm going to look beyond my clinic and see if I can find some solutions to this. And what she's proposing, uh, after talking to a whole lot of colleagues and thinking very hard about it, is basically moving as much ADHD care as possible back into primary care, so back into the hands of GPs. Now, GP training, GP training, GP training is (laughs) her mantra. But the other aspect to her proposal, which is a bit more controversial, is making it so that certain GPs, GPs who've had the appropriate training and accreditation, they could then initiate permits for Schedule 8 stimulants. Now, this is so controversial because Schedule 8 stimulants do cause a lot of concern in the medical community and with policymakers uh, about an addiction risk and an abuse risk. So, you know, you could expect that idea, if it ever, you know, is seriously tabled to um, raise some challenges as well. But you also can see how it would fundamentally solve this demand supply issue we've been talking about because you know, a lot of the people who are currently on wait lists or can't even get on a wait list because the wait lists are so unending, they could book into their GP. It would just put some extra hands on deck to deal with this wave, which by the way, is not going anywhere. It doesn't seem to be slowing down.
0: Mm. So I sent an inquiry underway, some like potential frameworks there. For you, mm. you got the diagnosis,
1: like what sort of a difference has it made to you personally? It's hard to know where to begin. I've always been a drinker. I've always like had, I didn't even call it social anxiety because it was just so baseline that I just thought I didn't even have a name for it. It was just my reality. And it's only since being on meds that I've realized how big an issue that was. I now don't need a drink. I've been treating my brain like an escape room for my entire life, just a place to sort of, to subdue, to sort of, to try and quieten down. And I've tried all kinds of ways to do that. And it's, I don't need to try anymore. It's finally quiet and it's, it's changed so many things I don't even know where to begin. Yeah. That's massive. Mm. Ange, thanks so much for sharing. Thanks, Tegan.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.